Right, I want you to turn to the book of Hebrews. We're going to study Revelation 20 today, but before we get there, I want to have some other information under our belt as we get into that subject matter, because what we are talking about is the return of Jesus Christ, the God who created the heavens and the earth that we dwell in created man, male and female, in his image. We are told that we lost that image, that we were brought about a forced separation because of sin, because of the simple act of disobedience, of doing something that God says, don't do this. Adam and Eve did it anyways. And the result of that is what we call sin. And the wages of sin brings about death. We're going to see the end of sin and death this morning in Revelation 20, which causes us to celebrate. So recreate in us your image, Jesus. We're looking for him to return, our God who became a man and tabernacled in this flesh. He's coming again, and here's the subject matter. So Hebrews 9, verse 23, Therefore... It was necessary that the copies of these things in the heavens should be purified with these, talking about sacrifices, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. And this is what he's talking about. So right now I've got, I've got a candle missing off of our uh, table here, our communion table. I've searched high and low for the candle, so we're missing the Holy Spirit in our presence this morning. This is what the, the candle the lampstand in the tabernacle and in the temple provided light for what is called, you know, the sanctuary, the holy place of the Lord, which is separated by a veil for the holy of holies. And all of that, that tabernacle, that temple, we're told here in Hebrews that it is a, it's an image, it's a shadow of the reality that is in heaven. So again, the candlestick that we have before on our communion table is always to represent this, this image of the light of God. God is light. The Holy Spirit represents that light multiple places in the Word of God. That's why we have a candle, usually, seven-branched, because the seven spirits of God is this uh, title, again, that we see in Revelation. So what's being addressed here is that Jesus, the, the reality of heaven, the things on the earth, they were just, they were an image. And listen to why Jesus is so much better. This is why I love the book of Hebrews. It's awesome. For Christ has not entered the holy places, again, talking about into the tabernacle, into the temple. He hasn't entered into the places, the holy places, made with hands, made with man's hands. These are copies. They correspond to what is true. But into heaven itself, listen where Jesus is right now on our behalf. Now he appears in the presence of God for you and for me. He's our mediator. He's our priest. Not that he should offer himself often, as the high priest enters the most holy place every year with blood of another. And again, this is in a reference to all the Old Testament sacrifices, that they were ongoing, they were repetitious. But Jesus' sacrifice is better because it's his own blood, and it was one time. He then would have had to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once. 
Listen to this. At the end of the ages, at the completion of the ages, he has appeared to put away sin. Sin has been annulled by the sacrifice of himself. And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. To those who eagerly wait for him, he will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. This idea that men die once and after this the judgment is the subject matter that we're sitting in this morning in Revelation. At the same time, it all revolves around his second appearance. So Jesus... Our God appeared the first time to deal with sin. And he's coming the second time with salvation, deliverance, safety from danger in all of its fullness when he comes back the second time. Now, I've, uh, go ahead and turn to Revelation 20. But as we continue um, in the narrative, the revelation, the prophecy this morning... I've mentioned multiple times already as we've gone through this, every single one of my sermon titles, I've intentionally had the name of Jesus in it because this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And I've, as, as we came into this, this is the, the thoughts and the... Um, not just in Revelation, but in everything that I do, let it be all about Jesus. If this document we are being told is the revelation of Jesus Christ, it must therefore be about all about him, his nature, his heart, and his character. And unfortunately, what happens often in, in whether it's in the body of Christ, um, the subject matter can turn quickly away from Jesus and can become about all these secondary issues. So as we've traveled through Revelation, I have intentionally avoided a lot of the secondary issues that we have to step into this morning in a lot of their fullness because Revelation 20, you read, you see, if you read any commentary that's going to have a decent introduction on this subject matter, it's one of the most hotly debated topics in regards to eschatology, which is the study of end times, and it's dealing with this period called the millennium and what it is. So we'll look at that this morning. But here's the caution that I have in my heart to my own walk with the Lord. When I, I, got, I got saved out of my stupidity, and the Lord saves all of us out of our stupidity. I read through the Bible a couple of years after I was saved for the first time and started listening to teachers who believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. They believe, you know, they're teaching the truth. And in this, I start to get instructed in, in regards to end times, in regards to eschatology. And I am a futurist, pre-tribulationist, pre-millennialist, and we're going to give definition to all of that. Uh, but these are all man's terms. And as I started learning this information for the very first time, I was learning it from the context where people are pretty much just teaching one perspective. And as a young, arrogant man and a young, arrogant Christian, you know, as I'm learning all this stuff for the first time out of the Word of God, I'm looking at all other believers like, if you don't believe what I believe and what I'm being taught, I don't even know if you're saved or not. And this is, this is the caution. That's not true. So I've already mentioned in regards to the different views on Revelation. I gave you a commentary in the very beginning. Uh, I think it's Steve Gregg. It's four different views on Revelation. Just the major categories of how people, the lens that they interpret this prophecy through. 
And again, I sit on the futurist side. This is what Calvary chapels sit in. And this is one of the announcements that I want to make. All of us have different backgrounds. Um, As the church changes, it changes all the time. New people come, old people go. We're in a really transient community. It's just the nature of a congregation. But there's a lot of questions that you may have in regards to what I teach on a weekly basis, what's Calvary Chapel's history, what our perspective. So on October 17th, if you are newer to the congregation, we're going to have a welcome lunch where we want to, one, just introduce us, our history, our perspective, why we do what we do, why we don't do other things that other churches may do to allow you to have questions, allow us just to get to know each other. But that's going to be the third Sunday in October. But going forward, what we're going to do is probably every quarter, every three months, we'll have more of a welcome lunch for those who are new. But the other two months on that third Sunday, we're just going to have like an ask the pastor kind of thing. And it's not crucify the pastor. It's not stump the pastor. But it's to give you the opportunity. There's a whole bunch of subject matters that I'm going to touch on briefly here in a Sunday morning that I'm not going to get into an in-depth Bible study in this context because it's going to be too thick. If I did that through Revelation, we would be in this document for years. And there's a lot more of the Word of God that we need to discuss and share about in here. So that's going to come up on October 17th. And again, we're going to have this once a month just as an opportunity for you to ask the questions. Um, and if I don't know, I'll tell you I don't know, and I'll go do the research if you, know, if you, if you do stump me in anything. So I bring that up because we're going to step into defining a pre-tribulational point of view. So pre-trib, the, the definition is that our understanding of the Word of God, that the Word of God teaches that Jesus Christ can come back at any moment. I just read in, uh, in Hebrews 9, talking about he is going to appear a second time, and when he appears, it is with salvation, right? So Jesus very clearly teaches that he is going to come as a thief in the night. He tells us to watch, which is to study his word, to pray and engage in our relationship with him, pay attention to the deceptions that are in our culture, whatever those may be. We are to keep our eyes on Jesus and Jesus alone through the truth of his word because he tells us he can come at any moment. So from the moment that Jesus ascended to heaven in Acts chapter, is it one or two? Acts chapter 1, when he ascends to heaven, we are told that from that moment up until now, up until he returns, Jesus can return at any moment, and there are zero prophecies that need to be fulfilled before he returns. So there is zero argument in the body of Christ, those who believe that the word of God is the word of God, that Jesus is coming back. The argument starts to come when... And this is why I haven't stepped into a lot of this, because I believe that Jesus wants my attention to be on Jesus. He wants your attention to be on Jesus. However, in the subject matter this morning, we have to kind of identify some of this and some perspective, (laughs) because that's the subject matter this morning. And here's my personal perspective. Because I used to be an arrogant, boastful, young Christian, Jesus has tempered me over time. And in that temperance, there's a, there are closed-fisted doctrines. And what I mean by closed-fisted doctrines are these are doctrines that we will die for. Jesus is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, and the King of kings. I will die for that. 
Jesus died for my sins and your sins on the cross. I will die for that. Jesus rose again from the dead. He was seen, he was witnessed, he was touched, he was heard, he was watched ascend into heaven. I will die for that. Jesus Christ is coming back at any moment. I will die for that. Jesus is going to come back before the events of Revelation beginning in Revelation chapter 6. I will not die for that. It's what I believe. It's the understanding that I have the word of God. But we have brothers and sisters, and you may be one of them, who believes that Jesus is going to return at the middle of the tribulation. You may be one of those believers who believes that Jesus is going to come back at the end of the tribulation. Not salvation subjects. Open-handed. When I close my fist around open-handed doctrines, what am I doing? I'm abusing his sheep. I'm arrogant in my perspective. I'm refusing to listen to the vantage point of a brother and sister, somebody who legitimately loves Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Jesus died for my sins, and here's my understanding of these end times things. And I say that in our culture right now in the United States of America, do you know what the largest growing segment of the body of Christ is? Those who are following independent prophets on the internet. People who just say whatever they want to say. This is what the word of God says. They, they make a, this God has spoken to me. He has given me a prophecy. Uh, here's how it's all going to line up. There's no accountability. There's no relationship. It's after a following. It's pride. It's arrogance. And there's so many things that you hear about the end times and the return of Christ. And I've been, I've been a believer for 20 years, and already there, I think there's been a solid three or four Jesus is coming back on this date moments that we've passed, and nobody backs up and says, oh, we were totally wrong, because Jesus tells us that nobody knows the day or the hour. I repent. I'm sorry. Nobody says that. They just move the date forward. I'm still a prophet of God. Just have a new understanding now. It's this, I mean, we hear it over and over. It's sad. I read an article last night before I went to bed. The Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, 3.3 million members in our country, just elected their first transgender bishop. So this isn't just a pastor. This isn't just a local congregation. This is somebody who is leading multiple churches. I think it's like 65 churches, and they're celebrating this. Now, again, this isn't dealing with the subject matter of sin in the people, in an individual's heart for somebody who is seeking cleansing and repentance. We're not going to exalt one sin over another. The issue is that this man who is saying that he is a woman and going by a woman's name is saying, I am standing before you to lead you into the presence of God, and I'm going to teach you in regards to God's authority. Where's, where's that authority from? It's not in the Bible. And I bring this up to say this. As I talk about pre-tribulational, and we're going to talk about the pre-millennial point of view in a minute, don't believe any man. Don't believe the words that come out of my mouth sits in this. And this is why we want to have the opportunity for ongoing dialogue. And we often do. For those of us who gather in our different studies, we talk about the word of God nonstop, and we ask questions, and we sharpen one another. So many of the doctrines 
that's different congregations, different denominations, all these divisions that are in the body of Christ that are absolutely not necessary. They're man's stuff. They sit in the authority of men. So, for instance, the, the pre-tribulational rapture, you can go back to early church writings, early church fathers, and you can find specific writings over the last 2,000 years in regards to that understanding of the Word of God. However, the dominant view became what? Whatever the Catholic Church taught. There was a Reformation 500 years ago because a lot of the things the Catholic Church taught weren't the Bible, it was man's stuff. A lot of the things that the Reformed churches teaches, it's not the Bible, it's man stuff. A lot of the things that Calvary Chapel congregations will teach, often, hopefully, they're teaching the Word of God, but just because you have the name Calvary Chapel, the Bible talks about, you know when you, uh, you get out of the shower and your mirror's all fogged up? Ladies, how many of you want to put on your makeup with a fogged mirror? You have no idea what your face looks like when you went out. You know, your lipstick can be on your eyeball. Because it's, I think it's, I think I look good, right? So this is what we do with a lot of end times prophecy. Here's, here's the lens that I think. This is how I understand it. I believe that Jesus Christ can return at any moment. Therefore, if no other prophecies need to be fulfilled before his return, that means all these events that we're looking at in Revelation, they haven't happened yet. That means they're going to happen after Jesus comes back. In Revelation uh, 3, I think he's talking to the Philadelphia church. He says, you know, a specific promise that I'm going to keep you from the hour of trial. You can look at the imagery of him snatching Enoch in Genesis chapter 5 before he pours out um, his judgment upon a Christ-rejecting world, but at the same time, he preserves Noah and eight others, right? We understand that to be an image for the nation of Israel. There's reasons why I sit on that, and I'm going to shelve that. So in the upcoming, if you want to dig into those doctrines and do some research and why we believe those things, then you know we need to have those open dialogues, but that's enough depth for this morning. But now we're going to hit the millennium. The millennium is the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ that we're going to read through. Before we read through it, I just want to give you the background. There's three main perspective, perspectives. The first one is premillennial, which understands that Revelation 19, when Jesus comes back, that is before this thousand-year period of time, that when Jesus comes back, he is going. there's this war, and we read this last week, that there's going to be carnage. And he is going to set up his kingdom for a literal thousand-year period of time on this earth from Jerusalem is going to be his capital, and he is going to rule all of the nations with a scepter, with a rod of iron, that there will be a forced peace, it will be his laws, and people will be submitted to his government. That's premillennial. Post-millennial, the understanding is that Jesus is going to return at the end of this millennium period of time, and that the, this thousand years that is being discussed is going to come about through the church proclaiming the gospel, and so many people in humanity are going to believe in the gospel that that will usher in a thousand-year period of peace that Jesus will be ruling through the church. I don't see that at all but there are brothers and sisters who believe that, and that's their perspective on this, and that's why this is hotly debated. And then there's another group that's millennial, which means that there is no millennium, that this is all allegory and pictures. So as we read through chapter 20, 
I'm going to teach through this interpretation and apply it from a pre-millennial point of view, because my understanding as I read this is that there are many prophecies that will be fulfilled during this period of time when Jesus is physically ruling and physically reigning on earth. Most of you are going to be familiar with that. The rest of you are looking at me like I'm nuts, and I get it. Revelation 20. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshiped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power." But they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, when they're completed, Satan will be released. He'll be set free from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, literally vanished. And there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works, their actions, by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. First section here. John, in this continuing vision, he has seen Jesus return as the King of kings and the Lord of lords above as part of Jesus' return, he captures the Antichrist and the false prophet and says that they are cast alive into this lake of fire. I'll come back to that again because it says that they're still there a thousand years later. 
Jesus has established his reign again on this earth, and as he is establishing it, the first action here is going to be dealing with Satan as the deceiver. These words, these descriptions of Satan, they're really, they're really telling. So Satan's main activity, his main scheme, is deception. And the word deception means to be led astray. So you have, I love this line that I always get a reference because it's right in front of me, but here's the straight and narrow line following Jesus, right? And in our life, we are presented with all of these different decisions, all of these different desires, these wants, these different pursuits. And we are told that Satan and the demons, that they watch us. And that's what this word for dragon and for serpent, both of the ideas in the Greek, so the word dragon in the Greek, it has, it's, it's, that the, it's that the vision is very acute. And same thing with the word for serpent. It has the idea that a snake is very attentive in what it is looking at. These are the roots, like the etymology behind the word. So again, it's a description of what Satan does. We're told that uh, when Satan came and he tempted Jesus, that when Jesus responded with the word of God, that Satan departed from Jesus, right? And Luke, it says that Satan departed until an opportune time. He's looking for an occasion. He's looking for an opportunity to come back into Jesus's life, to tempt, to destroy. And ultimately, that was, he thought he was getting victory through Jesus's crucifixion. In our lives, we are told that we are watched with a very acute focus. You were studied in this spiritual realm. We are told that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against princes and principalities in Ephesians chapter six. It says we stand in the strength of God alone and not on our own. The only reason we know anything about the spiritual realm is from the revelation of God's word. But we are told that these rebellious spirits, that they watch us, they study us. They look for the opportune time to come in your life. And if you were watched and you were studied by another human being, do they think that they know what your trigger points are? Do they think, if I studied you, if I followed you around for a month, a couple of months, do you think I could figure out how to well up your flesh? Sure, because we're predictable. We have our, we have our trigger points, we have our hobby horses. This, these spiritual rebels, they do the exact same things. They study you and they watch you and they look for an opportune time to come into your life to deceive, to lead you astray. The word devil is this, he is an accuser. He is constantly falsely accusing you before the almighty God. You see that in Job. What did we just read in Hebrews? What is Jesus doing for us right now? Where is Jesus right now? At the right hand of the Father, in his presence, for you and for me as our mediator, as our defender, as our savior, as our priest, with his blood, with his sacrifice. The devil can accuse us all day long and how he identifies us holds no truth. Jesus's words identify you. Man's words do not identify you. People think that they know you. People have labels for you. Nobody knows you except Jesus. And it's hard when people label us. It's hard when those words are not true. 
It takes a process. It takes prayer. It takes forgiveness. It takes humility. But the challenge for each one of us and the truth that each one of us needs to press into is let Jesus identify who you are as his child, as his creation. I look at myself in the mirror and I see all the different ways I miss every single day. I can't let those things identify me. I have to have the hope. He is coming with his salvation. I have been saved. I am being saved and sanctified every single day, but oh, there's coming a day. I yearn to be fully clothed in his righteousness. I have that hope and that confidence that that's what's going to occur. And that's what we have to press into and not allow the accuser or the world or another man, even in the name of Jesus, come in and identify us with something that is untrue. Let Jesus identify you. And as Satan, he's the adversary. He's the opposer. He is the one that is trying to shut every single door in your face as you follow Jesus. And sometimes it feels like a door gets shut, and it's just a shut door. Oh, I guess it's shut, and just turn away, rather than pressing in and continuing that uphill climb, because following Jesus is hard. I mean, again, we're following him. Allow him to redirect. He's very clear. Jesus is the one who sets before us an open door that no man can shut, no spirit can shut. And if he closes a door in our life, he's the one that's closing it. And you're not going to be able to bash your head through it anyways because he's closed the door. So we trust him in all of these things. But this is, this is why this is so important. This is one of the reasons why I believe that this is a literal thousand-year period of time, because it gives an incredible insight and exposure to Satan and all of these spirits who have rebelled against God and to the depth of sin and rebellion in my own human heart outside of him recreating his heart in me. And here's the two things. So we are told that Satan is very specifically by an unnamed angel Like, this isn't a fight. This isn't a struggle. God allows Satan to do what he's doing according to God's plan A. And there is coming a future event when Jesus returns that an angel is going to grab Satan and he's going to chain him. This is the the shackles of imprisonment. He is going to place him in this, what's called this bottomless pit. This abyss is always identified. This is a holding tank for the wicked of the wicked, rebellious, unclean spirits. He is going to be sealed and locked in that for a thousand years for the specific purpose that he won't be allowed to deceive. His activity in the nations right now, he will not be allowed to deceive the nations. And as Jesus rules for a thousand years, do you think Jesus' laws are going to be good? Do you think his laws are going to be morally good, ethically right, perfect, without error? Do we not pray for that in our own government and the governments of the world right now for righteous, just law without partiality? Is that what we're praying for? Okay, when he comes, there's prophecies, multiple prophecies in the Old Testament that when he comes, there's going to be this reign of prosperity. This reign of David, he is the promised seed of David. Again, there's prophecy after prophecy that there's going to be this time of peace in the future. And the debate is, is this the eternal heaven or is this talking about the millennium period? 
Most for me, I believe that it's talking about the millennium period when it comes to these prophecies. So as he is ruling and reigning, we are told that there's going to be a human population alive at the end of the tribulation when he comes back. There's a war, many are executed, many die, but there's going to be a human population still alive. And when Jesus comes back, there's going to be a population of rebels, and there's going to be a population of believers. And that population is going to begin to propagate for a thousand years with a perfect king, with perfect laws. But here's the issue. It's outward conformity, not inward transformation. We can have the most perfect laws, and we can have the most perfect ruler, but we're told two main things here. Satan is going to be bound for a thousand years. So as Satan is meditating in his issues and in his prison, does he have any reformation? Does he have any repentance? What are we told happens when he is released from his prison? What is he, a thousand years down the road, what does he do? No change. Right back to deception. So that's one revelatory that when the Bible talks about forever and ever, whether it regards to the judgment of unclean spirits or in regards to the judgment of human beings who reject God, that that judgment is forever and ever, and the reason is they'll never repent. It doesn't matter the torment. It doesn't matter the darkness. It doesn't matter the heat. It doesn't matter the absence of God. The revelation is that those souls and those spirits, even if given the opportunity, they would never repent. And then the second revelation in this, and again, it's, it's, the depth to the, it's the depth of sin and rebellion in the human heart. For me, again, Jesus has radically transformed me, and I know my thoughts and ideas, they're, they're impossible apart from his truth and his transformation in my life. But I have a very hard time understanding and just meditating in this. What is it that... You know, we're yearning for our king to come and to rule. And we're told that we're going to be ruling and reigning with him. But what is it in the lives of these other people that they're going to see Jesus? They're going to be able to travel and see him ruling for Jerusalem. You know, I have no idea what technologies Jesus is going to allow. You know, like what technology is he going to get rid of during this time? Is there still going to be TV? Is it this all broadcast? Or you got to go physically see him and those kinds of things? But for a thousand years, there's going to be no war. The image of the, the, uh, your swords are going to be beaten to plowshares. You know, there will be forced peace. We'll be ruling and reigning with him, enforcing his laws. But at the end of this, when Satan is allowed to go and deceive again, we're told that as the sand of the seashore, human beings are going to gather again around the camp of the saints, around this beloved city, Jerusalem, where Jesus is ruling and reigning from, and they think they're going to off the king. Does that confuse you? It's insanity. Again, it just, it just communicates to me the depth of my, the capability of my own sin. I could have Jesus right now ruling and reigning before me. And apart from me looking to him as my savior, 
looking to him as God, looking to him as holy and good and righteous, allowing him to identify himself and allowing him and begging him to transform me into his image. If that is not me, that I would actually rebel against him. It's just, it's, it's crazy. And then you go, just go sit in his first coming. What, what was it with people that they hear these incredible words of authority coming out of his mouth, his incredible teachings? Nobody can deny his heart and compassion for those who need healing. You know, can you, can you imagine, I mean, this is right now with COVID, it's like the plague that's going on, right? Stay away. But here Jesus stepping in and touching a leper. Jesus stepping into a prostitute's life who is filled with the filth of the world and loved her in her repentance as she sought him for cleansing and rejuvenation and revival. What is it with people that rejected him? What is it with the religious leaders that said, I will not let that man rule me? I shake my head at it because it's insane, because he's given me a different mind and a different heart, the heart that's been promised. He promises, again, the New Testament, the new covenant, I will give you a new heart. And on that heart, my words of truth are written on it. This is where, again, as we sit, why do we teach verse by verse in Calvary chapels? Because my opinion is worthless. This is what's all the weight, all the glory is in these words. I want you to know these words. I want you to study these words. I don't want you to be puffed up in knowledge and in arrogance, but in to be awestruck by his nature and his character every single day. Satan, his deception will be locked up. It'll be released again. Humans will believe that. Fire will descend from the Father in heaven, and Satan will be cast into this eternal hell, this lake of fire. And again, I, I brought up before, it says where, uh, where the, the beast and the false prophet are. It's, it's permanent. They were there a thousand years before they were cast in there alive. A thousand years later, they're still there alive in that torment. And it will go on forever and ever where the Bible says forever and ever. What does the Bible say? Forever and ever. And if it doesn't say forever and ever and ever there, then it doesn't say forever and ever that you're going to uh, live in his glory and his presence forever and ever, right? Forever and ever has got to mean forever and ever on both sides. All right. Verse 4. I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Who are they and them? Thanks, John, for identifying this group of people for us. So what does Jesus tell the disciples? In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus tells the 12 disciples that you are going to sit on 12 thrones, and you are going to judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Paul to the Corinthians as they're suing one another. Paul says, don't you know that you were going to sit as judge? You're going to judge the nations? Don't you know that you're going to judge angels? What's your issue with judgment now? 
That's why that's the, Paul's argument. Again, given this revelation that there is a promise to the body of Christ that we are going to sit with Christ in his judgment and in his rule. So, earlier on, all these promises to the churches in regards to overcoming to the church of Thyatira, the promise to that church is, he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Prophecy, he quotes, of himself, but he's bringing us into it with him. He shall rule with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like potter's vessels. As I also have received from my father, I will give to him the morning star, which interpretation is a new day. To the church of Laodicea, the promise is, to him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. So therefore, the interpretation in Revelation 20 verse 4 is that they who he sees on the thrones is literally the promise to all of those who overcome because the promise is to anyone who overcomes, anyone who hears what the Spirit is saying, I'm going to give to you this power, which is the same power that Jesus has underneath his authority and with him, and it's ultimately his throne that we are going to be seated on with him. It's going to be a crowded chair, right? We're all one with him specifically calls out these souls that lost their lives for obedience to Jesus Christ. They didn't worship the beast and his image and all of that. Again, a promise for that category. They're going to live and reign with Christ for this thousand years. But then in verse 5, it brings up this word that the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. So here you have to sit in an interpretation. Who are the dead? So some are going to say that those who were martyred during the tribulation, that that group alone is going to be resurrected during the thousand years and they'll rule with Christ, and that everybody else who died before then, they're not going to raise again until the end. That's one interpretation that I totally disagree with. The dead, very clearly in the New Testament, a believer is never identified as the dead. When a believer dies, the term that they've fallen asleep. Paul says to, uh, to depart from this body, to die in this body, our spirit immediately goes to be with the Lord. There is no holding tank. There was a holding tank when Jesus resurrected. He led captivity captive. Old Testament believers, New Testament believers, they are already in his presence. When you die in the flesh, you are immediately with Christ awaiting that merger between a resurrected body with your spirit that goes to be with the Lord. The dead here are seen as the dead in the sense of those who died apart from faith in Jesus Christ. And that's why where it gives this title, this is the first resurrection, blessed and holy is he who has part of the first resurrection. It's not talking about an event. It's talking about a class, an order Every single human being that is clothed in the righteousness of God through faith in God. Abraham was clothed in the righteousness of God. How? By faith. 
He didn't have the name of Jesus yet, but he was clothed by faith in the true and living God. Old Testament, New Testament believers will be part of this, what's called the first resurrection. And again, it's called the first resurrection because Jesus in John chapter 5 identifies two resurrections. There is a resurrection to life. That's the first resurrection. And he says there is a resurrection to condemnation. And that's not called the second resurrection here. It's called the second death. So when you sit in verse 11 where it's talking about the great white throne judgment, often that title revolves around the teachings of men and the, you know, our little parameters and stuff. But look at the identification of this throne. A throne is God's position of authority. He who is seated on that throne is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and all who have been made one with him for all eternity. It is great because it is higher than any other in its power and authority, and it is white in regards to its purity and its holiness. And what is occurring in this scene is that the dead This is not a judgment of believers. We are told that we have a specific judgment. So both uh, the Corinthian letters deal with that, that there is a judgment of believers. You will be judged for your actions in the name of Jesus. Amen? And we don't like amening that because does that kind of like grate on your nerves a little bit? You're going to have an accountability time with the Lord. I'm going to have an accountability time with the Lord. Your works are going to be judged. Your motives are going to be judged. Your actions, your thoughts, your behaviors, they will be judged by your Savior. We're told that all those things that you do apart from Christ, whether it's outward sin, whether it's false motivation, that that stuff burns up and goes away. He's removed your sin as far as the east is from the west. Your sin has been dealt with on the cross. But what remains at that judgment, your reward, whatever that looks like, I have no idea. You will be rewarded for your faithfulness. Well done, good and faithful servant to your judge. That's not this event. This event, there are books that are opened. The sea coughs up its dead. The graves cough up. It's dead. There is no longer a heaven and earth anymore. It is vanished. The next couple weeks, we're going to deal with the new heaven, the new earth, and the new Jerusalem. This event that we're told that these books that are open, but specifically, there's this book, and it is of what definite article, the life. Your name, if you have faith in Jesus Christ, is recorded in this book of his life. And everybody whose name is in this singular book will be in his presence for all eternity. Anybody whose name is missing, other books are opened. And they will be judged for their works and for their actions and for their rebellion. And just like Satan and the false prophet and the Antichrist, the lake of fire is this eternal torment that Jesus teaches on very, very Clearly, when it says death and Hades as these personifications, what is death? How did death enter into God's creation? Sin. So when he says that death 
is cast into this lake of fire, what's he saying? No more death. Death no longer has authority. Death no longer has reign. There will be no more death. It's in the lake of fire. What is Hades? It's the place of the dead. Because man died because of sin, the right wages of sin, there was required a holding place for the dead. And this event, this great great white throne judgment, all that is in opposition to God, all that is subject to sin and death is now in this eternal location called the lake of fire. But we're going to end on a good note. You ready? Turn to Ezekiel 33. And the reason why we're going to end on a good note, because we always want to have God's perspective, his heart, his mind. What is he crying out to us now? We don't want anybody for that to be their end. However, the revealed word of God tells us that that clearly will be the end of many. But I want to give to us God's heart. I've repeatedly said multiple times uh, that God does not have pleasure in the death of the wicked. Anybody remember me quoting that? I told you multiple times. I don't remember where it is. Well, I finally looked it up. I haven't been misquoting it, but what I've been doing is I've been leaving out the heart of God, the rest of God's heart in it. And I want you to know where this is. I want you to circle it in your Bibles. Memorize this verse. This is Ezekiel 33, verse 11. God commands Ezekiel to say to them, As I live, says the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. So even in that, mo- that event that we just read through, the great white throne judgment, that is not a moment of pleasure for God. What's God's heart? My pleasure is that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn. These are, these are emphatic. Turn, turn from your evil ways. For why should you die, O house of Israel? And just sit in that, sit in the heart of God. He reveals to us his plans and his purposes, his heart, his call for each one of us and the call for everybody that is outside of the body of Christ. People often want to stand in judgment of God. Why does God allow this? And his judgment is wrong and it's evil and it's harsh. God stands before all of humanity, testifying of himself, says, I do not take pleasure in your death. Your sin separates you from me. I am calling you today. I am calling all of humanity to turn and live. If you don't have to die, why would you die? It's insanity. The only thing that has broken through my insanity is the spirit and power of God. The only reason I am able to sit in right mind and in right truth and in his righteousness, which is impossible for me to save myself, is because he has revealed his word to me. He has revealed his nature and character to me and to us. And again, that that kind of, that verse, it impacts what I think about our culture. It impacts what I think about the evangelical Lutheran Church of America. Turn. 
Don't die in your sin. Don't die in false doctrine. Don't elevate your opinions and your desires above what we know to be true. Turn, turn and live. Father, we turn now. We turned all those years ago, turned away from disobedience and darkness. I turn to the good news of your life. I've turned every day since, Lord. I, I hear your spirit calling me, redirecting me, changing me, and transforming me. I come to you in confession, and I'm so, I'm so grateful that I have that bold, that we all have that bold access, the privilege to come before you and express all of our needs and our desires and our concerns to come to you, Lord, and the displeasure of self, how disgruntled I can be in my own thoughts and behaviors, Lord. And you're there in your gentleness and your mercy and your grace, and you wash and you cleanse and you transform, you speak what is true. I'm thankful for the revelation that we have to sit in, Lord, that I, I do believe that you're going to rule and reign for a thousand years. What a time of joy and fellowship that's going to be. I can't wait. Still, Lord, I sit, I sit in the confusion of just the insanity of sin. There's no logic to it. Lord, keep us from the, the knots that Satan tries to tie our minds into. Keep us from the worldly arguments of philosophy and reasoning that do not stand upon the foundation of your truth and your word, but are the teaching and the commands of men. Seems right in our eyes sometimes, Lord, but man, sometimes it's so far apart from your heart where just like you said to Peter, you've said to me, Get behind me, Satan. May my heart and my mind and my life not be filled with the adversaries, accusation and opposition and wanderings and lust. But may we be flooded with your truth and your life. We remember your body and your blood, your sacrifice and your covenant. worship you. Thank you for your tenderness towards us, Lord. Thank you for the men and women that are here. My brothers and sisters that you use to, to reflect your glory to me and your majesty and your kindness and your humility. Thank you for the body of Christ, Lord. I love them. I specifically pray for those that stand up and name your name and are promoting falsehoods. That she'd reveal yourself to them. That they'd hear that call to turn. And that they'd have the courage to turn into you, Lord and to be cleansed and transformed. I take that courage personally now. 
be glorified. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.